one and only Hayes Brown. Hey, hey. guys. Hey. hey, Hayes. I am pumped to be back. Have you ever heard that before? Only about a million times. It was very confusing for me on the playground as a child. Well, I'm just going to do it <laughs> one million and one. Uh, we're very lucky to have Hayes on the show this morning because he is a TV star. Oh, he was on MSNBC last night. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. I was on uh, All In with Chris Hayes uh, talking about a very serious, very confusing, convoluted story uh, of a missing Saudi journalist named Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, do so after the show, guys, after the show. Uh, and But yeah, we sat and we talked about it, and it's great because we've been looking for, I've been looking forward to some Hayes on Hayes action for a minute there. Very, very exciting. It's a great report. Obviously, you did amazing. So yeah, check it out after the show. But we're happy to have you on today here. Thank you. Okay, before we get to the news of the day, I have to shout out our own Craig Silverman, who tweeted, I busted the guy behind the, quote, competitive barefoot runner yells at neighbors on Facebook over too many acorns hoax. In return, he gave me the quote of my career. I can't believe BuzzFeed is the one who actually fact check. Yeah. Can't believe. Who, who can't believe? Really, in the year 2018, you can't <laughs> believe that BuzzFeed News fact checks. Come on. Pretty okay. good at it. So tell me what. So tell me what exactly happened here for the people who have not seen this yet. Okay, so obviously I appear on the show, but in my day job, my normal job is social news editor at BuzzFeed News, and so my team covers viral stories on Twitter and Facebook. I've been doing it about three years, so I've seen about every hoax in the book. Uh, and for those of you who still aren't aware, yes, we do fact check viral stories. I feel like we were some of the first people who ever did fact check some of these ever. viral stories back in like 2014. Um, so when I saw this story yesterday, everyone was sending it to me in my job as an editor, and I was kind of like, uh, this guy is clearly just trolling his Facebook group. Basically, mm -hmm. he put out this post on his neighborhood Facebook group saying, I'm a barefoot runner, and I keep stepping on acorns all over this path, so will you guys please clean up the acorns? And apparently, these people, God bless their hearts, had no idea he was trolling them and started say, like having very earnest responses to his post. Clearly... This went viral, but clearly to all of us at BuzzFeed News, this was, you know, a hoax mm -hmm. or he was just kind of trolling the neighborhood. Then Craig jumps in and does his debunk thing, our debunking. He goes in, he starts asking basic questions. Tell us about your barefoot running. He also had apparently had another post about being a competitive unicyclist. And Craig knows his unicycles and just really tore the story down right from under him to the point that he just said, you caught me, guys. It's not real. Yeah, basically what Craig did was the guy was kind of sticking with it for a minute and then Craig started asking him like detailed questions about unicycling and finally the guy was like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, you're right. I made it up. I'm sorry. And then he gave us the classic BuzzFeed quote, which I think a lot of people at BuzzFeed News are sharing this morning because yes, I know it's so surprising, but we do fact check our stories. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's good for Craig. It's good for us. Don't believe everything you see on Facebook, guys. Come on. Yeah, come on, guys. It's 2018. What are you doing? <laughs> All right, so Twitter, we want to hear from you. What's the biggest lie you've ever caught someone telling? Tweet us at AM2. Oh, this is about to get messy. Yeah, I hope, I hope people have some good ones for us. Okay, so we got to get our little story out, tell everyone about our amazing quote, but now we're going to move on to the news of the day because yes. obviously there is huge news going on in Florida today. Here's a tweet from CNN. The only way I can explain it is a third world country war zone. It's beyond recognition. 
There's telephone poles down. Every single telephone pole is snapped in half. Okay, that's a quote from a member of the Cajun Navy describing the scene in Callaway, Florida, after Hurricane Michael tore through the town yesterday. Michael is a now a tropical storm after making landfall in Florida as a Category 4 storm with 155 mile per hour winds. At least two deaths have been confirmed. BuzzFeed News Science reporter Zara Hirji is back with us this morning to give us the latest. Good morning, Zara. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me again. So tell us, Zara, why was this storm so historic? So essentially, right up until it made landfall, this storm was still intensifying. And this is the kind of thing that blows the minds of weather geeks is I think it was like an hour before it made landfall. It's winds. Um, the reports had come back from the folks that are actually flying planes around and up above the storm that the maximum sustained winds had bumped up from 150 miles per hour, which already had put it in, you know, category four territory, uh, which was historic for the area to 155 miles per hour, which is still a category four storm, but it's on that upper level. And it was right before it hit the coast. And so that means when it did make landfall, it was making landfall at its strongest point. And so that's a really different message for folks that say decided to ride it out because the night before they thought it was only going to be a category two storm. And then they woke up and were seeing it intensifying in front of their eyes. And when we're talking about category four strength winds, this is, as we've seen in the videos, winds that could pull roofs off. It, they pick things up off the ground and those can smash through windows, even smash through walls. And so the start, the type of damage that is starting to come out is pretty devastating. Yeah, some of the footage has been incredibly scary and horrifying. What are the damage reports so far? What have we heard this morning as people wake up to kind of survey everything that's going on? So the most widespread damage is just tons of downed trees and downed power lines. Hundreds of thousands of people across Florida, Alabama, and Georgia have lost power. But, you know, like the images show, there were whole towns, neighborhoods that were underwater because the storm surge had just pushed the ocean water onto land. So there's going to be a ton of water damage on the first, possibly second floors of buildings and homes along the coast. And then you're seeing what the extreme wind damage can do. So roofs that have blown off windows that were blown out. And it's not just homes and businesses. So there's the Tyndall Air Force Base, which is right on the coast, essentially was in the direct line of landfall. It was reporting last night, you know, widespread damage. And this morning they started posting the results of their initial uh, survey because it was safe enough for them to go out. And they said that nearly every home on the base had suffered some kind of damage. There's also the largest hospital in Panama City, which again was really close to where the storm made landfall. They also sustained roof damage, windows were blown out, and they had to evacuate or move some of their patients to a safer part of the building. And I was checking multiple 
Facebook pages for hospitals in the area, and it was kind of a widespread story that they had sustained some damage. Uh, same thing with some correctional facilities that were in the line of the storm. Um, the state is reporting that some sustained major damages, and I've been hearing from families that at least one facility uh, lost part of its roof and inmates had to be moved in um, overnight. So, you know, widespread uh, roof damage, structure damage, flooding damage, so, you name it. So it sounds like most of it has been property damage based so far and only two confirmed deaths. Is that because a lot of people managed to evacuate or was it because of the type of storm? What's your take on that? I'm not hopeful that that's where the death toll is going to end. You know, as I said, we're really just at the start of understanding what this damage is. So we're going to have a much better sense as the day unfolds, as emergency responders and folks that are just part of the recovery are going in and assessing what happened. I will say that yesterday, uh, FEMA head Brock Long in a press conference with President Trump had said this was right before the storm made landfall, that they were essentially a little bit disappointed that not as many people had evacuated or heeded the warning of evacuations as they wanted. Um, and I know that some BuzzFeed News reporters have talked to folks that did decide to ride out the storm from their homes. And one of them told reporter David Mack, I'm never, 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 never going to do that again. Uh, so I think we're just having going to have to keep watching that and see how that unfolds. Uh, I'll also say it's not just in Florida. I know one of the two deaths was in one of the other states, and this st storm is still passing through other states. So, you know, keeping an eye on the damage really across the whole southeast. Yeah, I know the storm is now moving up into Georgia and other southern states. Uh, do we have any idea what people can expect up there? What other states are this going to affect? So the storm, at least as of this morning, the center was actually over South Carolina, so it had mostly passed Georgia overnight. Um, and it's going to be moving through uh, North Carolina, Virginia. It seems like it will head out towards the Maryland-Delaware coast by tomorrow. It's been downgraded to a tropical storm. Um, so that means you're not going to be the, seeing the sustained hurricane force winds, but you can still see high gusts that are damaging. So expect more power outages. And the bad news for the Carolinas is they just were hit by Hurricane Florence last month, where they saw record levels of heavy rain and damaging floods. And that means that the rivers there, the ground there, it still hasn't recovered. You know, it's full of moisture, and those areas could see three to six, maybe even more rain just within a very short period of time. So that will exacerbate the situation there, and they could possibly see localized flash flooding. Oh, those people in the Carolinas have been through so much in just mm -hmm. a few short weeks. Well, Zara, thank you so much for coming on again and talking us through this, and we'll definitely be keeping an eye on the storm as it heads up. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's time to move to my favorite part of the day, fire tweets. Fire! Fire! All right, Hayes, I know no. that you're an MSNBC star now, but I know Chris Hayes doesn't have fire tweets, so. Uh, he does not. It'd be really weird if Chris Hayes had fire tweets. <laughs> yeah, don't steal our idea, Chris Hayes. Okay, are you ready? Ready. do my best girl voice for this. I, got, I believe in you. <laughs> best friend. Own it, girl. 
Me. Really? My financial advisor said with my income, I can barely afford to rent it. But um, bum she. That is my <laughs> life. I can't own anything. Womp womp. I own nothing in my life. All right, next up we have one from Caroline. Ah. <laughs> Saw a store that had neon lights saying coffee, pizza, sushi, and I was like, wow, this place really has everything. Then I realized the store sells neon signs. <laughs> Good one, Caroline. Well done. <laughs> Do you think my tweet is real? No, I don't think this is an actual neon store sign, but I think it's a really well-crafted joke, Caroline, so A+. Plus. But if, if there is a real neon store sign, come back at us. Let us know. All right. Josh David, use Y equals MX plus B to calculate the slope of the line you just crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Math jokes. Yeah, uh, I, I read this this morning, and I was like, and I get it, and then I was like, oh, okay. Remember algebra, kids, stay I in got school. it, <laughs> I was bad at algebra. <laughs> All right, boom. The new brown. Instagram, look how lovely my life is. Twitter, look at my life falling apart. That is too real for this Thursday morning. <laughs> well, you know, we can still have fun on Twitter. I like to post fun stuff on Twitter. Yeah, fun. <laughs> it's so fun. Okay, you ready for the two of the day? Ready, let's do this. Okay, the tweet of the day comes from Jay Frankenstein. Frankenstein. It's a, it's a Halloween joke. Halloween jokes, guys. When I was a kid, my dad and I were driving somewhere, and my dad said real casually about another driver, oh, what's this clown doing? Like you would about a bad driver. But then I looked over, and there was a clown driving the car in full costume and makeup. A miracle seeing one clown in a car. Good one, Hayes. Thanks. Good one. That's all we have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Josh for that tweet. Up next, we are going live from the district. <laughs> We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News legal editor and Supreme Court correspondent Chris Geidner. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. How's it going? Just, just another swell day in the district. Just another <laughs> fun, swell day in the swamp, I bet. <laughs> Nothing weird happening. It, right. it is, it is, it is peak swamp today. I was like, as I was walking over to the office, I was like, can, can we stop this humidity? <laughs> never, never, never. All right, here's a tweet from you, Chris. The Supreme Court is back to nine justices, and Chief Justice John Roberts finds himself leading a conservative majority court. The question for him is, what will he do with it? Chris, now that we're a few days in, how is Roberts handling the new full court? Yeah, it's it's been really interesting. We've we've heard four cases with uh, Justice Kavanaugh on the court, and the the. Most interesting thing thus far is that not much has changed. Um, there, there has still been this. This I, I wrote last week when the the term started about this this sort of uh, effort at compromise, and it, it really traveled into this week, despite the fact that Kavanaugh was on the court. And I, I, I think. Part of the reason for that is the 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 way in which Kavanaugh came to the court and the sort of heightened politicization of the the court in the public's mind right now, and, and the Chief Justice is uh, really really trying to keep uh, the 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 court's institutional 
credibility uh, as high as possible. And, and we've, we're seeing that in arguments. There's, there's a lot more uh, efforts to sort of come to a middle ground on cases than uh, we might have expected in the past uh, from the justices. So speaking of new Justice Kavanaugh, though, how's he been in the first couple of days? Anything exciting or weird or interesting about Brett now that he's a Supreme Court justice? Um, besides my mentions, every time that I uh, say his name in a tweet, um, not not a ton. Um, he has been speaking up in his first day of arguments on Tuesday. Uh, the court didn't sit on Monday because the, of of a holiday, um, but on on Tuesday when they they sat, he heard his first two arguments, and it was it was interesting. He sort of at one point he was like he asked the lawyer how how are we to to understand what the court meant by something. And, and it was sort of uh, a, a question that, that was worded in a way that he might have worded it more when he was on the D.C. Circuit than a justice normally words it. So I think his like transition, given that it was pretty much overnight from D.C. Circuit judge to justice, was showing at the beginning there. Uh, but yesterday we, we saw it was a, a case over immigration detention, and he, he he, we haven't seen writing from him yet, um, and it's important to keep that mind in mind because oral arguments are a chance for the justices to ask what they want to ask, um, and and certainly Brett Kavanaugh isn't used to the attention that is focused on oral arguments at the Supreme Court from his time at the D.C. Circuit. And so it's not quite clear if his questions tell us where he is going to be at the end of the day. But in this case over immigration detention, at one point he, he came right out and said that Congress's purpose in enacting this 1996 law was harshness. Um, and, and that's sort of a, a harsh assessment from a justice to make from the bench that, that sort of did suggest where he was going in the case was toward uh, more harsh treatment for immigrants, which was uh, actually different than the position that appeared to be taken by his fellow Trump appointee, Justice Gorsuch, yesterday, who uh, expressed a lot of concern with the government's position. Obviously, a lot of the people who did not want Kavanaugh to be confirmed, their big problem with him coming in was that he was going to obviously have a say in a bunch of influential cases coming up. What are some cases we should keep an eye on? Because I feel like now that he's in, the Supreme Court might kind of go out of people's minds with all the other news. Yeah, I mean, the, the court always sort of goes in and out of people's minds, um, for, for better or worse for me. Um, but the, the, I mean, the, the big cases that people need to be watching are actually the cases that aren't at the court yet. Um, there, there's a lot of cases that are sort of bubbling their way up relating to, to DACA, relating to, um, the, the transgender military ban relating to whether or not 
current civil rights law protects LGBT people from discrimination. All of those cases are in the appeals courts and uh, potentially before the justices in the coming two years. And so uh, all of those would be huge social issues that we would have expected um, Justice Kennedy to potentially cast the deciding vote in favor of the more liberal side. And so those are, are big cases that could be reaching the court that Justice Kavanaugh's vote would be different than Justice Kennedy's. And so those will be watching. In the, in the interim, we've got cases like we had yesterday where um, we might not have known where Justice Kennedy would have gone, but it appears that Justice Kavanaugh is taking a more uh, sort of straight line approach to the conservative vantage point. Shifting gears a little, Chris, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Even when a story like the New York Times' recent tax investigation reveals new information about Trump, there's no shockwave because it doesn't unsettle the foundation of his image, writes Anne Helen Peterson. Chris, why is it that Trump's image seems to be so impervious to scandals? Yeah, I think Anne Helen's point was was well taken there. It's... It's not so much that Trump isn't even impervious to scandal, it's that scandal is part of his image. And that makes it really difficult to have a scandal upset his image because you're you're sort of like at this point, yeah, yeah, of course there's a scandal. That That's what he does. And, and that makes it really difficult for, for investigative journalists and, and all reporters who are trying to... Uh, explain why things that are going on in the administration are not how things have gone on in the past, are not legal in some cases when you talk about the New York Times story. And yet, um, I think Anne Helen's point that like, for, for people who are diehard Trump supporters, this is like part of his gig. Um, it, it, it's sort of the, I mean, there's been a lot of talk this year about the summer of the scam. Um, There's sort of nobody who illustrates that more than, than Trump. And that, that's the spirit of the moment. And those are his supporters. And for people who oppose him, it's more evidence that he uh, is either a, a, a criminal, uh, inappropriate figure to be president, or just a bad president. Do you think that there is anything that could ever break through this, his supporters? <laughs> don't, don't make me answer that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I mean... <laughs> I, I, I don't know. There, there, <laughs> there have been many times that things have happened that I've been, I mean, I think we've all written on Twitter at some point that this is probably a line. And then the line is crossed and two days later we've moved on to something else. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. And, and I, I think that that's sort of going to be the big question of, of I mean, not just the midterms, which I think are, are slightly about Trump, but also about congressional reaction to Trump, um, which does sort of set up this dichotomy in the country that people can both think there should be a strong Congress that opposes Trump, but also that enough of the people support him. And I think, but I think that that will ultimately be the question of 2020 is, do, do you really believe that these things are okay? Right. Well, thank you, Chris, for your insights on the court and on Trump. Thanks so much for joining us today. 
think so. <laughs> Up next, I speak with Albert Samaha about his new book, Never Ran, Never Will. Stay tuned. Welcome back. We are going there with BuzzFeed News criminal justice reporter Albert Samaha to talk about his new book, Never Ran, Never Will, Boyhood and Football in a Changing American Inner City. Hi, Albert. Thanks so much for taking time to join us hey, today. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Never Ran, Never Will tells the story of Brownsville, Brooklyn, a low-income black neighborhood on the verge of gentrification in New York City. With so many urban areas going through a similar transition, why did you focus on Brownsville? What drew you to this neighborhood? Yeah, I, I think the initial kind of stat that drew me uh, was that Brownsville is the highest concentration of housing projects of any place in America. Wow. Uh, and I was kind of fascinated about how that would play um, with this wave of gentrification sweeping across Brooklyn, right? Mm -hmm. So on one hand, Brooklyn is in many ways kind of the, the model for how gentrification looks right. when it's moving very quickly. Um, and housing projects sort of a, a, a big wall of brick um, that people can't just buy up and move into. Right. So I was kind of interested to see how that wave would hit that wall of brick mm -hmm. and what that means for the people there, um, how it would change that community, whether the gentrification would just kind of filter around it, um, and what it meant for the, the kids kind of growing up in that environment, seeing these changes around them, um, and, and whether it would change their lives within kind of that, that area of brick. Right, and you say, you confess that you have moved into a gentrified neighborhood, and same, I live in East Harlem, so I, I get it. So there's a target across the way from me. How did you grapple with that while writing this book? I think it's something I grappled with even before writing this book. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of a constant state of grappling I've had to deal with. <laughs> In some ways, the book probably like helped alleviate some guilt, right? Where it's like, well, at least I'm doing you know something to something, understand, it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but but I think it, it it helped me grapple with it in the sense that it helped me understand better how folks kind of living there felt, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that that struck me, but shouldn't have been surprising, was that, you know, you talk to folks there, they'll be like, yeah, I hope there's a Whole Foods that comes up in Brownsville. I don't right. want to keep having to go up to Manhattan to go to Whole Foods. So it's like the folks that live there want the same things that, like, I want. They also want to go to brunch and go to, like, the same coffee shops. Right. The difference is they also want to be able to afford to live there, mm -hmm. right? So it's like this idea of, are we able to get development without the displacement? That's sort of the, the, the kind of paradox that we haven't yet figured right. out what the solution is for. Right. So the book focuses on the Mo Better Jaguars, a youth football team in Brownsville. How did they become really the heart of this story? I, I, uh, for a couple of reasons, I think for, from kind of a more thematic reason, they are, I, I kind of, I wanted to focus on kids mm -hmm. um, because I think the kids haven't seen the changes, right? They, they, they can't compare the past to, to the present. Okay. So I, I wanted to filter the changes that kind of we're seeing through their eyes to kind of see it from a more pure lens like that. Um, and, and I thought football was kind of an interesting metaphor for the changes in the inner cities because when we look at the changes in Brownsville in recent years, a lot of things are objectively good, right? A lot of schools are better, the crime rate is down, um, kind of the metrics we use to determine success in a neighborhood are right. improving. Um, but that objective success, just kind of across Brooklyn too, is leading to that gentrification, right? People right. are more likely to move into places when the crime rate is lower. Mm -hmm. And football is kind of the same way to where the thing that could, that could kind of destroy football mm -hmm. is this scientific research, which is objectively good. It's good right. that we know the true extent of damage that this, this sport does to the brain. Right. And yet that's also kind of the same thing that's driving the sport into extinction. Right. So, but it's still such a ticket out of these sort of like low income situations for so many black and brown kids. How did the parents in the book uh, really, really deal with that, if at all? Did they, do they read the same studies? Do they have the same concerns or something? Or do they just focus on the get out of here? I, I think that they, they had more trouble um, grappling with it than the kids did. Mm -hmm. I think because they grew up 
in a generation that saw football completely differently. So they're right. still kind of in the midst of this paradigm shift. They understand that it's dangerous, but it's also kind of like the neighborhood is dangerous, life is dangerous, and the violence on the field in many ways pales in comparison to the violence that they risk seeing off the field. And, and it kind of sort of numbs them to that. Kids, on the other hand, they like follow everything, right? And, right. and, and this is like the football that kind of that they know, you know? And, and I think. I think some people who will like ask me about the book without having read it will assume it's kind of the story of triumphs of kids making right. it out because of because of sports because of football, but in another way to look at it is that this book's really a tragedy, right? It's a tragedy of what means kids have to turn to in order to kind of level the playing field, you know, and that 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 they have to turn to a sport as dangerous as football because it's the most popular sport in America. It's a sport that brings you know high school recruiters from right. private schools, you know, giving got to be a money. four star or five star or whatever, exactly. right? Yeah. So low-income black neighborhoods are often painted with the same broad brush. What is it that you want readers to take away from this book, having read it? I, I think, uh, you know, so I think one reason that those neighborhoods are painted with a broad brush is because it's like this, these specific historical factors that, like, affected neighborhoods like Brownsville more than, like, many neighborhoods in, like, Manhattan and mm -hmm. things like that, right? And, and I think... Neighborhoods like like l these low-income black and brown communities were, weren't created by accident, right? Right. Like those housing projects didn't all coincidentally sprout up in Brownsville. Mm -hmm. They went to Brownsville because city officials, you know, in the mid 20th century decided that well, where where can we put a bunch of poor people without anyone right. complaining about it? Mm -hmm. And that that these neighborhoods were all constructed, and, right. and that we're still kind of living in the ripple effects. You know, seeing the ripple effects of of the decisions made by you know policymakers in the early 20th century. Right. And when we think about what's, you know, solutions to do for these neighborhoods, like how do we fix these neighborhoods, how do we make schools better, how do we reduce crime, bring development, um, I think the thing that worries most residents is that th those folks who kind of saw all the bad times mm -hmm. and have put in these like blood, sweat, and toil mm -hmm. to improve their neighborhoods now may not be able to reap the benefits, right? right? That they, they, they put all this time to make it better, and now that it's better, they're getting booted out. Oof. Well, that's a lot. People, read this book. Thank you so much for joining us. Albert, Never Ran, Never Will, Boyhood in Football and Changing America City is out now. Up next, Stephanie digs into sexism and AI. As if women in tech didn't already have a hard time, Reuters Business tweeted, Amazon machine learning specialist scrapped an AI recruiting tool because it did not like women. Great job, guys. BuzzFeed News' science reporter but Peter Aldhaus is here to break down this data. Hey, Peter, how are you? Hi, good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, so we have a tweet here from Ryan Broderick. Amazon built an AI to rate job applications and analyzed 10 years of male-dominated hires then it started penalizing resumes that included the words women's downing, downgrading graduates from all women's colleges and highly rating aggressive language. You responded in a tweet saying, this is being reported as a problem with machine learning, but there's another way of looking at it. The algorithm exposed biases in their existing hiring practices. I think that's a really smart take. So how do you think the AI revealed this existing bias? So I think thinking about the term AI is kind of interesting. It means artificial intelligence. But what's actually going on is it's not really intelligence. It's kind of dumb algorithms. It's computers trying to statistically learn from the data they've given what 
leads to a certain outcome. So here they have the people they've already hired and their resumes. Presumably they have resumes of people they haven't hired. And the algorithms are kind of going through that and looking at words and saying, well, what does it seem you don't like? And it was coming up with things like, well, you don't seem to like mention of women or women's or in some cases apparently people who'd been to a couple of specific women-only colleges. Now, and, and I think that reveals like what machine learning does is it can sort of try and pick up on a classification that's been done already from what it's trained. And if that training data has bias in it, and apparently this revealed a bias towards men in Amazon's hiring, then it's going to replicate that. And I think the way it did it, I mean, if I was in charge of recruitment at AI, I would look at that Amazon rather, I would look at that and be pretty worried. Um, so yeah, I think it, it tells us something about the data that was used to train the machine learning. Yeah, it's kind of a self-owned by Amazon, right? Like they try to come up and be like, oh, there's something wrong with our AI, but really it just kind of showed how biased they were against women, right? And and we don't really know exactly what they've done with this information. Um, uh, so this Reuters story uh, was, you know, had some anonymous sources within Amazon, but Amazon has not commented in detail, other than saying that it wasn't being used by their recruiters alone. Fascinating. So, what is the pros of using AI in recruitment process? Is it really more fair? If it's, if it's well done? Um, is it really more fair? I mean, that's a huge question. Uh, so I go back to what I said, like um, algorithms and machine learning will depend very much on the data they're given. Uh, so you need to think, if you're going to use them, you really need to think about the data you give them. And I think the problem with here, it was Amazon's own hiring data. Um, and then you probably want to think about the transparency. Like, do you actually know what the AI is doing? So there are some approaches that are a bit like a black box. They'll give you an answer, but you don't really know what it's done. I mean, I think fortunately here, um, they were able to discern what the algorithms were doing uh, and the words and phrases and the resumes they were picking up on which tells them something. I mean, arguably, it tells them something they should have already known, which is that they uh, have a workforce and a hiring that seems very heavily biased toward men. You said that Amazon hasn't come out and said anything. It was all anonymously sourced. Do you think that Amazon is going to attempt to fix this technology? Do we not really know? Uh, I don't know. Um, but there's another interesting example of bias in algorithms that came out uh, three years ago or so now. So in 2015, Google was rightly, well, very embarrassed when a, when a black software engineer pointed out that it was labeling Google Photos, which was using uh, machine learning to label photos, uh, was labeling his friends as gorillas, his black friends as gorillas. I mean, just appalling bias. Now that happened because the algorithm had been shown lots of pictures of white people. It hadn't seen that many black people in the training, but it had seen gorillas. So when it saw a dark skin tone, it went, ah, 
that's a gorilla. I mean, just appalling stuff. Um, and again, it's down to the training data, right? Um, now, Google Photos will no longer do that. And Wired tested this out back in January. They showed it for 40,000, I think, photos of animals. But what it's doing now, it's just kind of being really, it's been blocked from saying gorilla, right, and chimpanzee and other things. So there, it seems that Google hasn't actually kind of fixed the problem with the training of the algorithms. Rather, it's just said, oh, don't do that. So we, we won't allow you to classify certain things. So, yeah, I mean, finding a problem and fixing a problem properly, I guess, are, are two different things. And, and the take home for me is that, you know, as we move to doing more with AI or with algorithms, we really need to closely examine how we're training them, the biases of our own that we're putting into them with that training data, and actually monitoring what they're doing and having some transparency about that. Yeah, the AIs can only be as good and as non-biased as the humans who are creating them. Well, Peter, Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me and congrats on your AMCDM debut. We hope to have you back soon. I hope so too. Up next, Hayes is sitting down with Raven Simone. Don't go away. Welcome back to AM to DM. I'm here with Raven Simone, Disney Channel royalty and star of Raven's Thank Home. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so let's start off. This Friday, Raven's Home is doing a musical episode. Yes. Your last full album came out a decade ago. So what was it like to be making new music for the show? It felt amazing to be in the studio, singing my heart out, knowing that we're going to be putting together different genres to connect to different types of people. Everybody from the show got to come together and, and showcase their talents in another way. And, you know, when I released music when I was on The View on, on SoundCloud, mm -hmm. it was something I don't think people were... Um, didn't understand. <laughs> they didn't understand. It's okay. I don't have a problem. It's fine. it's fine. It's fine. I mean, if you watch, you know, The Hobbit, you'd get it. But um, <laughs> it's good to be able to make pop music, mm -hmm. R&B music, funk, and, and a little bit of K-pop to to entertain the masses. Well, have you ever thought about revisiting your childhood career as a rapper? Shout out to Hip Hop Teddy Bear. <laughs> Yo, that outfit that I wore in the video on kids' songs for Hip Hop Teddy Bear, it was a full... It was pretty fresh. It was a fur onesie. Wow. It was a cheetah fur onesie. I was a cheetah girl even then. You know, I love rapping. I love performing. Maybe it'll come back. Right now, I'm loving being an executive producer on Raven's Home. I'm loving being able to work with new talent and seeing how their career is being molded and moved forward. And I love being able to go to school for fine art and work on my bachelor's degree because to see my mother's face when I received my associates, <laughs> she was like, oh. I said, Mom, you know I've met a couple presidents and had my own Done show. And she was like, I don't care. I don't care. Come give me this degree. Bam, paper. <laughs> paper. I was like, it's a piece of paper. But she's happy, and that's all that matters to me. So in a video for It Gets Better, you said you feared coming out as queer, uh, that you thought it would hurt your career. Mm -hmm. Now you're back on the Disney Channel. Mm -hmm. You play a gay character on Blackish. Shout out to Blackish. Hey. Do you think things have changed for the better? 
Um, yes, I think things have changed for the better. I think there's still progress to be made. I think that there's amazing ways to get content through. Uh, independent, you have you have a wonderful category on Netflix and Amazon, and you know we just have to continue to make positive images of the LGBTQ community so that we are continuously thread within society and I, that's why I love Disney Channel because yes uh, we are for children but we are also recognizing what's going on with the generation at this time Andy Mack did a wonderful episode and um, there's there's many other topics that get talked about on Disney Channel in a very positive mm -hmm. uh, safe way and it makes me happy. Have you given any advice to your to your younger actors on Raven's Home about their career and navigating all that since you know you've been doing this since the age of what? Three? Three, yes, and I'm 32. It's been a minute. Well, I try my best to. You know, there's only so much cuz times have changed. I mean, like now it's like you know, your career can your network can go net worth can go up just because of a million followers, not necessarily because you actually get the money. So <laughs> I'm just I'm sorry, is that rude? Anyway, so uh, yeah, of course I tell them it's important to say no. Mm -hmm. It's important to know who you are. Mm -hmm. It's important to understand that uh, a career goes like this, mm -hmm. and it's important to take control of your self worth and understand what you're worth, so that when you go into these meetings with companies and mm -hmm. and you know marketing people, you like I know what I'm worth, and right. it's important. So rewinding a bit back to the start of your career and mm -hmm. back to your music, one of your earliest songs had the hook, my friends are friends mm -hmm. and we don't care about color. And then in an interview with Oprah, you said you don't identify with the label African American. Mm -hmm. Do you still feel that way in 2018 is my question right now. It's funny because people, um, I don't know if they listened to the interview. Mm -hmm. I didn't say I wasn't black. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm black. Okay. Um, but... Uh, so it's the phrase, on my passport, phrase, my passport says American. <laughs> mm, okay, okay. <laughs> my passport says I never said I wasn't black. Oh, trust me, I know I'm black. Okay. Uh, there's just a difference. There are many African Americans, especially in 2018, that come over from Africa and come here mm -hmm. and need the green card. Your first generation African African American. That's how I look at that title. That, okay. Um, my family. I did my research. We're not going to go into that, but. There's a lot of black Americans who've been here mm -hmm. longer than the Americans that are a different color. Why can't we have <laughs> just one name? I'm confused. Interesting. Well, as a code on The View, you talked about a lot of big issues, including race, and in the process made some controversial comments. Do you stand by all those opinions, or are there any that you want to take the time right now to Wait, say, like... Wait, what? Ask me that question again? So, so during The View, a couple of controversial what opinions. What I say? <laughs> Is there anything that you want to take the time right now in uh -huh. front of America yes. to... Take it back. Ooh, like, America. Actually, we're on the internet. This is the world. <laughs> um, listen, what I learned from The View is everybody has a different way of thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has an opinion. My mama said it like, like booty hoes. Everybody got one. So, <laughs> Classic mom wisdom. Classic mom wisdom. So here's the deal. Things that I said, mm -hmm. they, call me, uh, they call me living room conversation girl. Mm -hmm. I probably <laughs> should have worded it differently, but um, I have to... I have to say this, I learned what I'm good at and I learned what I'm not good at. And the things that I said, I'm personally not gonna rehash because I learned my lesson, mm -hmm. I moved forward, and when I get asked a question of a sensitive matter, I try not to go right to racism. Mm -hmm. I try not to go right to, 
you know, the pain and suffering, I'm trying to live in my now, mm -hmm. and that can be difficult. And I didn't take that into consideration all the time because I'm so used to living in the, how am I gonna change the now? How am I gonna change the now? Mm -hmm. And you know, it was a it was a challenging moment for me in my, my career, and I learned a lot and what not to do and what not to say. And uh, you know, that's what I have to say about that. All right, that's fair. So one more thing. we're huge fans of RuPaul's Drag Race on this show. I love RuPaul. And All-Stars season two, you were the first guest judge. Next episode, Adore Delano goes home. And it was pretty controversial. And I've seen some, some whispers on the internet. What did they say? They said that uh, you might have had a little something, something to do with that. Do you, have you seen those rumors at all? I didn't hit nobody. <laughs> I mean, fair. So I didn't hit nobody. Did that? Was that what the rumor said? No, I, I, I was, honestly have to tell you, I don't know what the rumor said. You gotta, you gotta fill me in. So, right so now. the T is let me that tea. Michelle Visage jumped on a grenade, and that something that you might have said might have really upset Adore Delana. Do you remember that being the thing? What do you remember about the experience? I remember I was staring at RuPaul, wondering why you're prettier than me. <laughs> I remember looking at all the talented people on the stage. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember. If I said, you know what, I am kind of harsh with my words, as we all know. Mm -hmm. uh, my bad. And <laughs> I didn't say or remember saying anything malicious. And if mm -hmm. they felt that way, I would like to apologize for that. But I don't remember doing anything malicious. All right, that's fair. So one last question for you. Uh, one of your... Jumping back to the music again because it delights me so. One of your first singles was That's What Little Girls Are Made Of, which was Missy Elliott's first credit song. Would you collab with her again? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to stay good, but hell yeah I would. Are you, talking, are you serious? I mean, I don't, have, I don't have Missy's contact or anything, but I was just wondering. I was I'm wondering. trying to get, let me tell you something. You might, I might. I might get up there in a bathing suit and do a little shaky shaky. <laughs> Give me like six months to get it together, but I will. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Raven. Thank really you. appreciate you taking the time. Raven's Home airs on Fridays on the Disney Channel. Up next, Steffi talks to Samin Nasrat's new about new to Samin Nasrat's new food show that comes highly recommended. Stay tuned. of our favorite fictional chef, Auguste Gusteau, anyone can cook. Uh, that was really bad. And in real life, the new Netflix series, Salt, Bad, Acid, Heat, proves that's true. Samin Nosrat, the show's host, cookbook author, and chef, joins me now. Samin, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So I watched a little bit of your show last night, and I was telling you before the air, interview aired, um, it's just kind of like ASMR almost, watching all of this amazing food get cooked and you're so lovely and your voice just like talking us through all of these amazing recipes. What was your aim in making this show? Are you hoping that people will ins be inspired to cook? Exactly. I really wanted people to, you know, watch all four and then get up and go turn on their oven and roast some cauliflower or roast a chicken. I want you to feel like you can make anything. and you know, what better way to inspire people than by making a beautiful show, which I don't think always exists for home cooks. I think a lot of the beautiful shows are about, you know, lifting up chefs and famous cooks. So I wanted to make something for home cooks. And it, you also highlight a lot of 
home cooks who, you know, you spoke to a man who makes focaccia, you know, home cooks in their home countries who are just doing the thing they've done for thousands and thousands of years. And that's really cool that they're able to be lifted up and shown to this wide platform as well. So the name of your show comes from the four key ingredients you say in cooking, salt, fat, acid, heat. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Why are those the ingredients? Yeah, basically over my cooking career, I realized wherever I was traveling, whatever kitchens I was in, that these four elements were common to all good things. And um, I wanted to prove that in this book and in this show. And the idea is that salt enhances flavor. It makes things taste more like themselves. Fat carries flavor and it creates incredible textures like crispy and creamy and crunchy and light. Um, acid offers contrast. It's like that squeeze of lime in your margarita, you know, or on top of your fried fish. It just gives it a different dimension to things. And heat is just the element, you know, heat is cooking. So applying the right level of heat, and it really breaks down into high or low. And once you figure out which one to use, you get the most amazing textures, tenderness and crispness on the outside, or just like perfect browning. So there's kind of like a method to all the madness. And really there's so much commonality to how people cook all over the world. Yeah, I mean, I think if your view, our viewers are watching now, just listening to you talk about that, my <laughs> mouth is watering like viscerally. I can't even like explain it to you. So the series, like I said, it's so beautifully shot. It shows these amazing photos of food and people from all over the world, which is so cool. So how did you go about taking your cookbook of the same name and turning it into this show? Um, well, there was an amazing team involved, absolutely, who was totally committed to this to the same quality of making something really special and beautiful. And so um, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm just a person who's driven by my senses. And when I made my book, I knew I wanted to make something accessible and beautiful. And so I, um, when I started working with my director, Caroline Sue, the very first question she asked me, she said, I want you to make a list of everything you love. So I made this 12 page Google doc of like peanut butter and jelly, the warriors, <laughs> you know, like feta cheese. It was just so that she could be fully inspired by me. And she shared that with our director of photography and together they came up with this beautiful, vibrant look that is, I'm so proud of. It's so beautiful. Thank it's you. so beautifully shot. I definitely <laughs> recommend people. I mean, you could. I, you don't want to watch it with the sound off, but you definitely could. Just watch the food and just be like, oh, my gosh. Uh, in April, you appeared on one of our podcasts, and you talked about uh, grandma's cooking and the fact that so many of these recipes and these have been passed down from generation to generation. Can you talk a little bit about your own experience with that? Oh, absolutely. So my family's from Iran, and my grandmothers are both amazing cooks. My grand, One of my grandmothers lived in Iran, and one of them lived in San Diego, close to us where I grew up. So I got sort of a double dose of, of the kind of cooking. My Iranian gram, or my grandmother in Iran, um, she lived on a farm. And so she, I would, when I visited her, we would make like this amazing sour plum leather, and she was making everything from scratch. And on Saturdays, we would visit my San Diego grandma, and she would just cook whatever my favorite foods were. My own mom is an incredible cook, and she really set the tone in our house household by spending basically all of her time shopping and cooking so that she could teach me and my brothers really our, all of our cultural traditions through food. And the table was where I really got a sense of what it meant to be Iranian. 
And so even though I didn't grow up wanting to be a cook necessarily, I loved eating. Immediately once I started cooking, I realized how special and important this thing was that was handed down to me. And now through me, it's really translated, I call it Persian-ish. <laughs> so I think a lot of the things that I do, my mom or my grandmother might be a little bit horrified at the kind of shortcuts I take, but I'm just trying to translate it for people, you know, to, to get to experience our wonderful cuisine. So for people who are interested in cooking and food, but maybe don't have the confidence that a professional chef might have, what's one thing that you would say to people who are trying to become home chefs? Well, it's all about practice. So it doesn't matter if you mess up. It doesn't matter if things go wrong. Don't take it super personally. You can always order pizza <laughs> and try again tomorrow. Just don't give up. You know, spending the time in the kitchen and paying attention to what you're tasting is really the way to improve. Thank you so much for joining us. I definitely highly recommend people check out Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. So beautiful and delicious looking. Streaming now on Netflix. Up next, we respond to your tweets. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. We made it. Woo. It's almost Friday, right? Oh, thank God. Yes, and oh my gosh, I really have to highly recommend Samin's show, I feel like I, my mouth was literally watering during that segment. I'm it so hungry, Stephanie. I want to read this tweet from Stevie Martinez. I wish my grandma's cooking was a restaurant. I miss her and the Aww. food was incredible. So sweet. Thank you for so much for sharing that, Sini. And yeah, I think one of the things that I really loved about Samin's show was the fact that she was going to these rural areas, watching people create recipes that they have had in their family for generations and generations. Mm -hmm. um, so if you just want something really nice to watch, I definitely just put it on and eat some bread and relax. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds well, we asked you what is the biggest lie you have ever caught someone telling. Katie got caught in one herself. She said, when I was a teacher, I was turning 25 and the kids were like, are you going to get this drunk this weekend? And I was like, no. And that was a lie. Well, yeah. I mean, I can't blame you for that lie. I that's, think one of the funniest things about fair. becoming a 20s, mid-20s person mm -hmm. is realizing how many people you know are teachers. Oh my gosh, and right? When you were little, you thought your teacher was like... A god saint. <laughs> yeah, like a god. And then you see people you know like out at bars like dancing and mm -hmm. like, oh, they're a first grade teacher. That's interesting. Mm. Well, in response to our Hurricane Michael update, Nichelle says... Lucky to still have power, but the wind is still strong here in Savannah, Georgia. So the, that storm's still ongoing. So we need to keep on that and make sure yeah, that Yeah, we're so happy we to have you as a viewer, Nichelle, all mm -hmm. the way down in Georgia. Thank you so much for watching. And we hope that you and your family are safe mm -hmm. and that, you know, the damage is minimal from the storm. Yeah. Well, that's our show. Thank you to our guests, Zahra Hirji, Chris Geidner, Albert Samaha, Peter Althaus, Raven Simone, and Samin Nasrat. And before we go, quick shout out to my mom. Happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday, Hayes' mom. <laughs> and we both will be back here tomorrow. Let us know what you want us to talk about, what you're thinking about, and we'll see you then. Bye, guys. <laughs>